You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Aria Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Phoebe Maltipovi. Uh, Phoebe, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, so I teach French at the University of Toronto, um, and I wrote a book called that has nothing to do with French called The Perils of Privilege, which came out in 2017 with St. Martin's Press. Uh, thanks for coming on today. I think you've been on uh, Culturally Determined enough times to be an official uh, friend of the show. Um, so our topic today is going to be mainly uh, Philip Roth, who passed away at the age of 85 last week. Um, we both wrote pieces in reaction to his death, um, so we thought we'd get together and discuss those pieces and just him more generally and the, the way that people have reacted to his death. Um, what did you, what did you think when you saw that he had passed away? Um, I was sad because I think like everybody who, I guess we've both read most, I don't know if you've read all, I've read most, I'd say of his books. I have uh, read all. I have to say, I have, oh, wow. I have read them all. Okay. All right. Well, as a, as a Roth amateur, um, I always on some level secretly hoped I'd meet him, you know, and I hoped he'd win the Nobel prize also. Mm-hmm. It just seems sad, you know, that he hadn't. And it always seemed like he was about to, well, except then it sort of seemed a little less like he was. But, yeah, it just seemed very like like the end of an era in some way. Um, obviously, he didn't, you know, he, he didn't die at 20. It's not sad in the way it would have been if that had happened. But it was still sad. Yeah, it was still, I was still sad. Um, and it certainly made me think about him again. I hadn't um, read anything by him in, since maybe... 2008 or so i'm not sure um so it it, yeah seemed like the moment to think about him again how about you yeah i mean when i saw it i was uh you know there was a moment of shock but then he's 85 years old um you know there was a piece in a profile of him in the times just like three or four months ago that portrayed him as still totally with it and and fine health and so it, it was that was kind of my first thought. I was like, oh, oh man, this must have come on quickly. Um, but you know, when you're over eighty, uh, these things can can happen quickly. Um, and yeah, I saw the um, the Times. Ref- I think one of the Times critics said it was the end of an era in the same way that Picasso's death was the end of an era. Um, you know, all he was kind of the last of the like huge mid-century male, at least authors. Some of the you know, um, Toni Morrison is still with us. Though she was, I don't know if we'll call her mid-century. She was more like uh, 70s is when she uh, started. still be mid-century, though. 70s. <laughs> yeah. It, it's before we were born, I that, guess. So, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he's my he's uh, he's my favorite writer. And I wrote a bit, I wrote a piece for the Weekly Standard um, about a great what, piece. I, I really liked it. Oh, thank um, you. Um, which we'll link to below about uh, what I thought he'd be remembered for, and some of the a couple kind of biographical quirks that we share. One is that um, he grew up. He was born and grew up in Newark, New Jersey, in a neighborhood called Wequaic, which was a uh, overwhelmingly Jewish neighborhood in the 30s and 40s. And I grew up in a a uh, suburb of Newark called South Orange, uh, where a lot of people who left, a lot of Jews who left Newark uh, moved to South Orange uh, after the war. And um, so I always felt, you know, I knew, I knew some of the places that he wrote about, and I always, and some of his characters would live in South Orange or Maplewood, the, the town next door to it. Um, once they had kind of achieved a certain level of uh, prestige, they, they got out of Newark. Um, so, yeah, I, I always felt a Biograph and I'm Jewish um, and a man, obviously. So I always felt like a biographical affinity with him. 
Would you feel that when you were reading his books, would you feel like you recognized the not just the names of the places and stuff, but did it, it seem like culturally spot on to you? In in some ways, I mean the 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 Newark of his childhood is like a vanished world, and that all like all the Jews left Wequaic, and um, as far as I know, it's a predominantly African American um, neighborhood now. Um, so the stuff the stuff from his childhood, uh, plot against America, and other descriptions of Newark before World War II um, are you know like a vanished world. Um, there, I think there was something, the sensibility, the kind of wise, wise Enheimer sensibility of like the greater New York city area. Um, but also he, you know, he like Zuckerman moves to Manhattan and stuff like that, but it's always like Newark is like way in the shadow of, like it's not even one of the outer boroughs. It's, it's way far below uh, New York city in terms of, uh, in terms of the like cultural pecking order of, uh, the you know the greater New York City area, so it's it's an afterthought, and um, and that's often the way that uh, the northern New Jersey suburbs are treated. Uh, someone, you know, there's like a joke that uh, my cat is going to make a cameo very soon. Uh, there's oh. <laughs> there's a joke that like you know uh, someone from northern New Jersey will introduce themselves uh, to oh, someone at, <laughs> someone at a party and say and they'll say where are you from and they'll say oh I'm from New York City and they'll be like oh where exactly and I said well I'm actually oh, from New yeah. Jersey um so he yes, kind of this is true this is true I, I'm from New York City I live briefly in New Jersey but that's I I can attest to that happening so there um, was kind of a I think there was kind of a local pride um in the fact that the area had produced uh, such a you know such a great novelist who wrote so often about about the area yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So um, you first sorry, read him in in college, if that's right. Yeah, I had a um, uh, I never. I th- it seems like a lot of people picked him up in in high school, and for some reason, I, ne- I never did. Um, but I had a favorite professor who um, taught the intro to English Lit class, American Lit uh, class that I took, and in a subsequent year, he what he was teaching a class on Roth and Updike. Um, so since I didn't know anything about either of these authors as a 19 year old, um, I got, uh, Portnoy's complaint <laughs> from Barnes and Noble and, uh, one, um, the poorhouse fair, uh, by John Optic, which is, I think his first novel, um, move the cat out of the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you know, if when you're reading, reading Portnoy's complaint for the first time is a shocking experience because of the, uh, crazy vulgarity and, um, you know, also like really hilarious nature of it. Um, and it doesn't seem like, you know, for a young person, it doesn't seem like something that should be in a book. Um, right. so that was like, like a mental earthquake reading that. And then took the class, you read like six more works by him. And yeah, I just kept on, kept on reading until I finished them all. Wow. Uh, what, what was your introduction to him? Like, well, I don't remember how I ended up finding it must I don't remember and I also don't I think it was probably Goodbye Columbus before Portnoy's complaint but it was those two I definitely read first and I was probably about 15 and I think um so this was some of what I just wrote about but that Portnoy's complaint seemed to really distill and I found it hilarious and I've reread it since and I think it is like one of the great books I don't think there's any doubt but it just seemed to really distill something I'd already seen in the culture and even just with people I knew about um, this notion of sort of the Jewish man 
repulsed by Jewish women, obsessed with non-Jewish women. Mm-hmm. I didn't have much at 15. I went to a math and science high school. I didn't have much worldly experience of any kind. And I just thought, oh, well, I guess that's how the world works. Um, yeah. And it really took like going to college um, to realize that's not how the world works, actually, and that there's a wide world of people and they're not all Portnoy, um, not even all the Jewish ones. But especially, yeah, I just hadn't really, um, it it just, it seemed to really be very similar to things I've seen elsewhere in the culture. But then later, I I really, I was very um, taken with Roth's work. So I did read also a bunch of his other works, but specifically, definitely, um, I married a communist and American pastoral because I wrote my high school senior thesis on those books. Oh, really? It was like. I only remember that it had something to do with sort of the children of um, intermarriage and how they're treated in those novels. Um, Yes. And which ended up being actually very similar in certain respects to my dissertation topic, which had to do with France and the 19th century and years, you know, and obviously wrote it years later, but something about like how Roth is both accessible, but also like makes you think, um, I guess, some of, I mean, that's a very sort of vague way of saying what makes him special. But I mean, I think for me as a high school student, that was it was literature I could sort of make something of, which I really like your cat, by the way. Oh, thanks. She's she likes getting into trouble, like moving the camera and so forth. <laughs> it's OK. My my dog recently hung up on a work phone conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, with her paw. Uh, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, maybe I hope uh, Grumpkin, her name is Grumpkin, do not hang up on the skull, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's it. I mean, those, it's interesting that you, um, you were almost like allowed to do a high school uh, assignment on Roth. Like, you can't, you can't imagine Portnoy ever being assigned. Um, well, it wasn't Portnoy specifically. Maybe that helped. Uh, <laughs> right. It's more like the sort of like later and more, um, oh, my dog's saying hello, later and more serious. Roth. Mm-hmm. I think, although at my high school, they probably wouldn't have minded. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, yeah I yeah. wish I would have maybe encountered some of these books a little older because I was definitely at 15 old enough to understand them, like understand the words, kind of get something out of it. But I don't think I had the distance that would have been maybe helpful to get that this is fiction. These are characters. Yes, it relates to the culture. No, it's not like some sort of doom awaiting me but yeah um so why don't we talk about the piece that you wrote which is on that topic of uh rough uh women characters or lack of women characters and you were reacting to so there's been a lot of you know uh, articles that came out since uh Roth's death and most oh, of them before been- actually some of the about this topic, but yeah, sorry. Yeah, no I mean, when he, yeah, there was a lot of stuff when he retired from writing. I think it was yeah. five years ago. There were a lot of kind of early obituary type things written. But um, uh, Dara Horn, who's a, a Jewish American novel novelist, wrote an op-ed in the um, Times um, that was critical of Roth's treatment of women. And you wrote your 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 piece is kind of a response to that. Yes. So Dara Horn's piece. Parts of it I sort of really strongly sort of personally relate to, but the conclusions she came to I really 
couldn't agree with. So basically she talks about reading specifically um, Goodbye Columbus, the novella, um, when she was 15. Um, and both relating to sort of like, like you to this sort of New Jersey Jewish setting, but also finding the um, character of Brenda Potemkin, the sort of, to use the derogatory term that would be used, the Jewish American princess character. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't, I'm not sure she's completely that cliche because she is supposed to be attractive, which I feel like a Jewish American princess, certainly when I was growing up, would be considered kind of not. Hmm. But um, it depends. It depends in which I also did. So I did grow up not to this is good. I grew up in New York City and there was kind of there was snobbery about the suburbs in a way, mm-hmm. like sort of a snobbery sometimes against people who seemed like they would be wealthier who were in the suburbs. But it would be still a snobbery, a cultural kind of snobbery mm-hmm. that I think would be fused with the kind of Jap stereotype. But anyway, back to Dara Horton's piece basically saying that she didn't relate to this character and that the that basically that Roth's um, women characters did not ring true to her that they didn't seem like real women um, and that they seemed sort of like mean-spirited caricatures and she pointed out specifically and I'm sure you'll have you know much more Shakespeare than I do but she talked about um, Shylock as a sort of at least you get Shylock's perspective, um, although somebody responded to me about this on Twitter saying that, like, but it's a play. Um, so you do get people's perspective more in a play. Um, but about Merchant of Venice, but then also there were some other examples, but basically that it wasn't that she felt that Roth was just sort of being stereotypical and negative about Jewish women, but that it was sort of like a literary failing to always focus on sort of the perspective either of himself or of some character clearly demographically and more uh, based on himself. And my feeling was that that's not a literary weakness, that different types of literature are doing different things. And, you know, the ability to, I mean, I guess partly because I just taught this book, but um, I think of something like Madame Bovary. I can read Madame Bovary as a woman and think that rings true. You know, it was not written by a woman. Um, I don't think that means that Flaubert's ability to write a female character is sort of the only type of literary excellence. I think it's like a type of virtuoso skill that can be put towards literary excellence. But I think the ability to um, like like what you were writing about the metafiction, all of that, this sort of the ability to interestingly walk the line between fiction and autobiography, the ability to talk about your own really specific situations in a way that resonates with people who may be nothing like you is also um, literary talent. And I think, um, but there are aspects of it that where I agreed with her, which was more just that, yes, it does feel um, like, the American Jewish experience certainly is basically Roth or Woody Allen. And that if you're not demographically like them in some respect, and that could be being a woman, it could be anything else. Um, like I don't find, like I can under, I can relate to this sort of chafing at tradition type thing, but it for me would not manifest itself in chasing Annie Hall. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's about about it, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a, a lot of places we can go with this. So, like, um, I think he, I think Roth only wrote one novel with a female protagonist, uh, which is his third novel called When She Was Good. Um, the book that's one I haven't read. Okay, the book is not very good. I would not recommend it. Okay, um, it was so it's before Portnoy. Um, it's just kind of a standard novel, nothing special about it. It's I think it's loosely based on the he had this uh, um, awful first marriage. Um, to this um, woman who he met, I think, when he was a student at University of Chicago. And she um, faked a pregnancy to, like, entrap him into the into the marriage. And they were – and she was, like, acted crazy or was mentally ill and uh, refused to give him a divorce. And then she died in a car accident, um, I, I think, sometime in the, like, mid-'60s. Um, so this book is kind of a uh, – Auto, kind of a, bio, a fictional biography of her childhood. So it's not about Jews. It takes place in the Midwest and it's just not very good. Um, so that was it. And, um, he, yeah, he never, he had, char- you know, char- like major supporting characters in his novels who were women, but uh, never uh, the main character or the I recall, narrator. So I haven't read, again, this is all based on memory, but in the later novels, I remember some very, sometimes implausibly, implausibly attractive and interested in Zuckerman young women. Yeah. Which yeah, so this is kind of like a, something that some feminist critics have perhaps picked up on. Yeah. This is, yeah, there, there was some of the, the, that Woody Allen um, flavor to some of the later work. There's, he wrote this book called the humbling. That was another, one of his late, late, very late novels that also was not very good. Wouldn't recommend, but yeah, it involves like a, seven-year-old man having an affair with a 35-year-old woman. Um, so not realistic. Um, well, you know, I, I'm 34 now, but I'm sure things in a couple months will seem, you know, the, the 70-year-old men <laughs> will take on a new glow. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so there, there, definitely, yeah. there definitely is that, uh, like, that criticism is valid. Um, I remember, and, and the other, I mean, so the other thing is, yeah, he, I, and I wrote about this in my piece, um, his novels... Um, especially after the mid seventies were intensely autobiographical. Um, he created this alter ego, Nathan Zuckerman, who appears in about a, uh, 10 or so novels and who shares a very close biography with Roth. Uh, he wrote a book that, uh, where he himself was the main character that was essentially nonfiction called Ap- operation Shylock, um, in which like wacky things happen. And, and there's another guy, there's someone pretending to be Philip Roth in Israel, um, who he goes and confronts. So it's like a Dostoevsky and like doppelganger plot. Um, but yeah, he was like intensely, um, focused <laughs> on himself. He wasn't like Shakespeare <laughs> with, uh, you know, exploring, uh, totally alien worlds, uh, the Shylock example is interesting uh, because of Operation Shylock. And there was a, an essay by the Shakespeare scholar uh, Stephen Greenblatt that came out um, last year that made the case that it's very likely that Shakespeare never actually met a Jewish person in his life. Um, but he still managed to create a character who today we recognize as having some kind of Jewish traits somehow. So his like imagination. That's that's interesting, but I guess not so surprising to me. So that's more sort of what my dissertation research was on. And it was certainly, and I, I, this was on a later period and in France, but it wasn't uncommon, certainly like in the enlightenment for um, French 
non-Jews to have never met a Jew, but there was so much literature where Jews appeared that there would have been so much to refer back to these tropes kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, but this was yeah. in like 1600 or 1595. Right. So it, it right. was earlier before there was, um, that, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So Roth did not possess that, that kind of imagination no. or talent or also no. like if we compare to Updike, you know, Updike wrote a lot of books about, um, you know, like waspy people who are having affairs, but he also wrote these, crazy novels like the coup that takes place in an imaginary African nation. And I think he wrote a, a book that was set in Latin America. And he wrote a book where people are turning into um, the gods and goddesses from Greek mythology. So that was like a more capacious kind of inventive intelligence than, than Roth who really fo- focused in on his own biography. Yeah. And as I said, in my piece, um, you know, not since Hemingway is there uh, an author who is so intensely, um, associated with his own fictional creations. Right. I mean, I think, I think that's certainly true that other authors sort of left their own heads a bit more, but I do think it underestimates the sort of the literary, both the skill, but, but also just like the, how enjoyable it is. Like, I think if, if you would read Roth, if everybody would pick up a Roth novel, especially like you said, the later ones and think, Oh, you know, like more about this guy. They, nobody would buy these books. You know what I mean? Obviously, something comes through. There's something in the way he talks about his own life, the way he writes about his own wrote about his own life that can make sense even if you don't personally relate. And it doesn't end up reading as like his diary. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah, and uh, he was like after Portnoy came out. Um, people thought he was Portnoy and he yes. wasn't Portnoy. He invented Portnoy and exactly. he's written about uh, his parents were not Portnoy's parents. He said right. that it was loosely based on like the neighbors who lived on the upper floor of his childhood home. Um, but, uh, and the character originated through a kind of like a, um, after dinner, like skit he would put on, uh, for dinner parties. And that's where the, the like the voice of Portnoy came from. But, um, People were, people were like, this guy's a sex maniac. Um, but, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's, I think, been true. I know that um, with Balzac, when he was writing, at first it would appear in newspapers, like his novels would appear serialized in newspapers. And I remember learning this in grad school, that people would just assume that this was news stories. They wouldn't assume it was about him necessarily, but they would assume these were just things that had happened. Because mm-hmm. how, you know, there's just, I think, readers of fiction don't always quite know what to do with it. But with Roth, though, what I found so striking about, especially with the Dara Horn piece, was that there had just, there has been this long now discussion in the literary world, I guess, especially in young adult literature, which I'm not as familiar with, but um, just about cultural appropriation, who gets to say what, um, who gets to speak for which group, who can create which sort of characters, sensitivity readers, all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, So sensitivity readers being that like a publishing house will or maybe just independently, um, like if a, I guess the likeliest scenario, probably if a white writer writes about a black character, have um, a black sensitivity reader read it and make sure things are sensitive, I guess. Um, so this has just been really where literary debates have been sort of um, for the last few years. And then it just seems so strange to see Roth criticized for writing about exactly the demographic 
that he could write about from personal experience. And it seemed like had he tried to stray further afield and claimed authority, that would have caused its own issues. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's, that's and I, interesting. I don't, that's and, and I don't think, I mean, I'm not somebody who thinks that writers have to only write about their own experiences, but it just seemed to me that just sort of take the works for what they are, don't expect them. I think the problem is more this expectation that if there's anything to say, and I think in a way this owes a lot to Roth's talent, but that if there's anything to say about the American Jewish experience, it's in Roth or it didn't happen almost. <laughs> and I think that's um, that's more the issue. Yeah, um, you made me think of um, The Human Stain, in which, um, yes. spoiler alert, um, there's a character who is a light-skinned African-American man who like passes or crosses over to be accepted as a white man and um a white jewish man yes a white jewish man so it's um it's a little a little bit of a suspension of disbelief um but you know these cases um do happen uh anatole broyard um uh, is one such person who actually was a friend of roth's um or an an acquaintance at least of roth's um oh i didn't know that this happened to um yeah there's a really good um uh, memoir by his daughter called one drop um I think her name is Catherine, but something Boyard in the one drop. Uh, I recommend that about rediscovering her her family's history when she only learns on her father's deathbed that um, he's actually um, African American, dis- descended from um, Creole um, people in New Orleans. But anyway, uh, I think Roth did catch some flack when he made up this character um, mm-hmm. who like crosses racial lines and was writing about. Um, someone you didn't know anything about, but yeah, I mean, okay, so you can, <laughs> when you're writing fiction, you can either write about what you know, uh, or imagine other people and put words in their mouth. Like it, yeah. you're, you're crossing some kind of boundary regardless because you're take, yeah. you're going outside your own skull. So yeah, it, it's, I, I think the whole sensitivity reader thing and this, all these cultural appropriation arguments is just a weird, like uh, cul-de-sac that, this the world of young adult fiction has has gone into um i yeah I, I can't imagine a sensitivity reader being appointed for any <laughs> philip roth novels i don't think it would pass well, muster who would they be I and mean, it would have to be like i don't know aside from the human stain which i think almost sort of gets around it by having the protagonist be basically an old jewish man but but not by this sort of little twist yeah. little twist there or um or like with um, American pastoral, it's like a Jewish man who doesn't look like he's Jewish, who could pass as not Jewish, which mm-hmm. I would assume Philip Roth, much like myself, could not. You know what I mean? So, yeah, a little twist, tiny, tiny little tweak there for very important to the plot. But, yeah, not um, straying that much. Um, but yeah. he also, you know, in, um, in American pastoral, he created a um, young woman who becomes a domestic radical and then joins the um, Jain, J-A-I-N religion. So true. he did He did create people who are totally alien, I'm guessing, from anyone he, he actually knew. I, I don't know, yeah. I mean, I think he obviously, it wasn't like, it's not like from the very limited amount of read, um, Knausgaard with the, um, have you read these? The no, I haven't read any of it's very long struggle. Um, book on, upon book of his struggle, um, where from what I've read of it, it is literally just like his life. Um, but sort of 
you know, walking that line between fiction and autobiography. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think Roth, it's definitely fiction. It definitely, there are characters, but I just wouldn't, um, I wouldn't go there to figure out what are Jewish women really like, if that makes sense. It's just, I think that's not really, I think the problem is just that there aren't, there's no equivalent to Portnoy's complaint written by a Jewish woman. I think certainly in the culture at this point, it's hard to even picture something like that. I mean, I'm thinking this isn't as literary, but like Broad City. Oh, I was thinking girls. Or girls. Oh, there's all, such a girls angle here too. All, but, cultural, um, all cultural conversations eventually reach their end with oh Lena no. Dunham's girls. And in the final season, she's she's like reading um, one of Ruff's novels. I can't remember which one. Oh, really? Yeah. I never got to the final season of Girls. Um, but Broad City, I think of just because it has this sort of raunchy um, aspect. It has like the Jewish mother aspect with um, Ilana's mother's meat. Oh my God, it's so funny. The, but they, that, um, so I think of with Broad City, there's an episode where it's the same episode where they discuss one of the characters, it's the pegging episode, mm-hmm. but it's, but then, um, so that's Abby, but then Alana's plot is that she's going with her mother to an underground, like literally under a manhole. And there's discussion of the manhole, obviously, um, the word, but there's a, there's like a designer handbag sale. I guess it's like in Chinatown in New York. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm somebody who's been to a lot of, they were not like this, but I've been to a lot of sample sales, like with my mother um, in the garment district of New York. Like I could, um, there, it was hilarious, but it was also like, it was Jewish women situations, you know, and it wasn't in the sort of like Brenda Potemkin sort of like prissy sort of thing. But yeah, so I think that it does exist, but I also think there's less of a need for that in this generation. Like, um, I guess we're about the same age as um, girls and broad city people. Um, And I don't think there's the whole, I don't think there's among secular Jews, at least as much to rebel against as would have been the case um, then. Yeah. And partially because of Roth, (laughs) you know, of him cracking, you know, cracking open the conversation and uh, saying that both, it was like, I guess the way I look at it is like he he made it so that Jews are fully part of the American experience by turning them into objects of satire in the way that they're like, they could be equally an object of satire as anyone else because Mm -hmm. there was this kind of idea that like after the Holocaust, um, you know, any like anything that was like bad for the Jews was like one further step into like a a second Holocaust. And he caught a lot of flack early on um, for, Goodbye Columbus, um, the stories, especially the short stories in there, uh, he caught flack from like the local Jewish establishment in, in Newark and, you know, like B'nai B'rith type people. And he has this, he has a story where there's, that takes place in the military, um, where a like Jewish private, um, tries to use the, uh, connection of being Jewish, um, to get a Jewish sergeant to like excuse him from duty. So he's like a shirker, um, and is you know portrayed right. <laughs> portrayed very negatively. Yeah. And and the um, Jewish sergeant does he like lets it slide one time, and then the guy comes back and does it again, and then he like sends him to the brig or whatever. And yeah, this really pissed off a lot of people who yeah. thought it was um, 
that Roth was like actively harming American Jews by, by yeah. writing about him in this way. Yeah. I mean, I think what, um, so this is something I actually wrote about him a few years ago or a couple, no, it was like a year ago. Sorry. I'm just, sorry. We're in my apartment. I don't remember timelines, <laughs> but, um, cause this was when I was, um, at the forward, I wrote about this, that how weird it is for Roth to be discussed, not inappropriate necessarily, but for him to be discussed as like, a white male sort of like canonical, you know, one of the, the white, great white men mm-hmm. when his literature, especially something like Portnoy's complaint, but, um, and the stories in Goodbye Columbus really are such identity literature. You know what I mean? Like today, this would be considered like about identity, you know, and like it could be, and it could be assigned in like Jewish American literature class or something. And just, um, it doesn't make him non-white, um, but it's certainly like imagine if Portnoy's complaint had been written by somebody who wasn't Jewish. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't think that's possible, but <laughs> that's something else. Maybe somebody really, really talented. Actually, Flaubert has this draft that's just like um, would have been just like that. But yeah, um, I don't know. I think. I think that's, um, yeah, it's just funny to think of somebody who was so, like, at the time, because people talk about, like, Roth and Bellow, like, this is just some eternal thing that they would be considered, like, white men writers. Obviously, if they were men, yes, but um, it just seems like they were really, like, it was very precarious when they were actually writing, like, that they would be considered part of the sort of American mainstream. Yeah. Um, Canadian American, I should say, in Bellow's case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we're not going to solve the are Jews white or are they not white? <laughs> I, mean, I think they, I think those particular, I think there are Jews who are white and I think Philip Roth was one of them. Um, but I just mean that it's not so much that like the question of was he white or not, but more like this question of literature without the identity component when it's like, that's all there is practically in some of it or not all there is, but it's so present. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, again, comparing him to Updike who was a um, white wasp from Pennsylvania then moved to Massachusetts. um, And he wrote, you know, he could write like the rabbit uh, books or kind of like an ever, like the everyman character um because you know that character had no like racial or ethnic or religious like things that set him apart at least as far as i remember i don't remember if he was catholic or something i don't think he was um but and then you know could roth write an everyman thing i'm thinking but then yes he did write a novel called everyman that came out about 10 years ago that was about an unnamed protagonist and all of his like his like lifelong um struggles with different illnesses and stuff and uh uh, so he he did kind of claim the ability to yeah. you know, universalize in in that way, even though he was going like very particular, just telling yeah. the details of this one this one guy's life. Um, yeah. do you, are there any other Roth areas we should discuss before I moving think, on to our I think second I'm, I'm topic? Roth out. That's that's enough Roth. <laughs> okay. But, oh, I, I I remember what I, my okay. other question was. Um, for someone who who hasn't read Roth before and is still somehow listening to this conversation, uh, what book would you recommend that they start with? I mean, Portnoy. It's like, it's the most, it's just going to draw you in. I mean, it's not necessarily, okay. I mean, the human stain, I would almost say, if you're interested in these sort of academia 
speech, all sorts of topical things, or the plot against America if for the Trump stuff, or American pastoral for like a sort of great novel type novel. But yeah, which would your cat recommend? <laughs> Uh, she's very anti-literature. Uh, she'll oh. sit, she'll sit on it sometimes, but that's, that's the extent of it. Um, I would pick, I think, um, uh, the ghostwriter, which oh. is the first Zuckerman, not like true Zuckerman novel. It's short. Um, it's really, really good. It's about like the Zuckerman character. Who's the Roth analog as like a young man who's recently published them. Stories that have become controversial. Is this the Anne Frank one? Yes. Okay. And then it, tie, it ties in with um, the story of Anne Frank uh, in a strange way. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's pretty short. It's like 200 pages. Um, yeah, so I say give that one a shot if you're, if you're curious. And then, and then probably move on to Portnoy and, um, you know, get, like, uh, your hair blown back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to hit... One more topic, a controversial topic, whenever this name is mentioned anywhere in the media, um, and that's Jordan Peterson. Um, so, uh, what's his deal? Yeah, what's up with Jordan Peterson? So I was. So you're Canadian. No, um, <laughs> no you're, you're I live no, in Canada. Live in Canada. Um, I teach at the same university that he does, actually. Although we our paths have not crossed. Oh, I, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't make that um, yeah, I, I live in the same city that he does, but I mean, I'm American. Um, but yeah, suddenly he's everywhere. I guess I was aware of the phenomenon a little bit before most just because of the Canadian local news angle. Um, he seems to be, so he's a psychologist, psychology professor, best-selling advice writer, advice guru, I, he, um, his latest thing. book is a self-help, a self-help book right. called um, but, Twelve yeah. Rules for Life," I think. And his book before that was, which I I have read neither of these books. So the one before that was like long before that, and was not uh, anything for like the a mass readership, as I understand it. It was like a scholarly book. Yeah. His, so his first book is called uh, "Maps of Meaning," I believe, and yeah, it's a dense, um, a dense tome about. Uh, reconciling, you know, like Jungian uh, mythology and archetypes with uh, the mythologies of the planet and Hmm. storytelling and other strange things. A little less accessible. There probably aren't like 20 (laughs) copies in every pile (laughs) in the, so there's a, the bookstore that's like Barnes and Noble here, Indigo, you walk in and it's just like a wall of Jordan Peterson's 12 rules everywhere. Right. Um, the vegan handbags. So last time um, I did an episode where I mentioned Jordan Peterson, it was with um, uh, the writer from Slate, Osita Wanevu, who um, brought him up because Kanye like had took a screenshot where he was watching one of his lectures or something. And this is just an offhand um, reference, but um, the, the blogging as commenters um, picked up on it and really went, at us for not, um, you know, not knowing where we, we spoke or whatever and getting him wrong. And, you know, since then I've, I've, um, I haven't delved into his work at all, but I, I still feel qualified <laughs> to comment on him because that's what everyone does online. Well, I think there's, there's a cultural, there's like what, there's the cultural phenomenon and then there's, um, 
the texts, right, with anybody. And then there's also he's producing quite a bit of text in interviews and so forth. So I did watch that BBC interview that um, the notorious one where he kind of demolished the interviewer who, you know, um, sort of tried to pin him as a sexist, but didn't really do it very effectively. So that doesn't mean she was in the wrong. It just means she was a, maybe not the best interviewer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just like, he won the debate as it were, and it was pretty clear. And, um, and then there was, yeah, that I've read some of the profiles. I have not, you know, I had, I had a long list of novels I wanted to read when the semester was done <laughs> and I was reading novels, but um yeah, I mean, I guess what I think, so I think a, a few things about the phenomenon, which are completely uninformed by the books. Um, one is that I think his looks enter into it more than people want to admit because he's a man. So people don't talk about men's looks so much, but I think he has this kind of striking, he's does not looks in the same way as like Justin Trudeau style looks, <laughs> but but I think it matters. And I think that he looks the part, you know what I mean? Like he mm-hmm. looks the part of this sort of whatever platonic ideal sort of father figure, but a bit glamorous. And certainly I think now that he's making all this money with the Patreon or whatever, that New York times profiled photos of him with what looked like very expensive shoes. I suspect. Um, <laughs> I didn't then, notice the shoes. I, I noticed he, his unusual, I, thought, I noticed his unusual jacket um, oh. that they pictured him in that had like uh, the lapels yeah. had like some kind of detailing yeah, or something. There was a lot going on there. There is a lot of very, um, High-end menswear in Toronto, I think, more than more than I remember seeing in New York. So, who knows? The other more substantive thought I have about him is that he seems to excel at, and I think this is a skill, at sort of plausible deniability. Like, walking up to the line of saying something really offensive, but not quite saying it. Which I think allows him to both thrill the followers who want him to believe that every romantically unpopular guys should get an assigned woman, but also to say, I never said that. How dare you? You're an idiot. You didn't really do a close reading of my 1982 thoughts on, you know what I mean? So yeah, I think that plausible deniability, it's something I've seen um, in other works, like in, in actual books as well as for, from just quotes of people in, it's something I remember very much from when I, I once reviewed um, the this was years ago the Israel lobby book mm-hmm. where it seemed like there was often this sort of walking up to the line of saying something but saying but we're not saying that but I think he does it more smoothly where I think he's able to kind of yeah like walk up I don't know how intentional it is there's no way to know that but I think that's something about his um, like everything every time I ever see him quoted it seems like he's on the cusp or like hear him interviewed seems like on the cusp of saying something that is really outrageous, but not quite taking it to the unambiguous place. Um, and I also just, but, but my main concern with him isn't so much the like, well, you know, he's not very sensitive or something. It's more like, what is he doing with this? Where is this all going? And partly because I'm in Canada, is like, is he going to be the head of Canada? Like what, <laughs> you know, like what is this all heading towards? And if it's just him having like a nice budget for like shopping in this, I live in this neighborhood that has a lot of these stores. If he wants to like shop in this neighborhood and buy nice menswear, fine. Does he want to be like emperor? Does he want to be like a religious leader? Like, or does he just want to make a lot of money? So those are he my. He just wants thoughts. to help people, Phoebe. 
Then why did he charge him so much money? Seeing as he had salary as a tenured professor, um, which you know it's enough to live on in this city. It's you know. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a lot of things I find (laughs) questionable slash objectionable about him. I encourage everyone to read the New York Times profile. We'll link to it. Uh, My favorite part of it was that it was in the style section. Instead oh, that of was good. National news. That was just such a perfect decision. And oh, I, I was glad you highlighted that because yeah. I thought that was great. Yes, it, it definitely. Well, it kind of it kind of like relates to what I was saying about his looks. Like it shows that it's kind of like a trend, and that it's not necessarily a new philosophical movement. It might just be like a fad, and that's what people like now. And then next week they'll like something else. Yeah. Um, uh, so. Yeah. And the thing, the thing, the argument about which is, which is, <laughs> which is that he's, uh, he's talking about, you know, whenever there's a witch, the witch will live in the swamp and mm-hmm. the witch has to live in the swamp and there's a reason for that. And then the interview, the journalist said, but witches aren't real. And he replied something like, witches are real. Wizards are real and they live in swamps. And everyone was <laughs> like, witches don't live in swamps. <laughs> what witch lives in a swamp? So it was just very, it was just very strange that he was so insistent that both witches are real and they live in swamps when they are not real and they don't live in swamps. They live in, like on the, on the heath or like in a castle or something. On a broomstick. Oh, yeah. That's a <laughs> you know, the wicked yeah. witch of the West lived in a castle, not in the swamp. So that's, that's the, I, I think I was joking about this when he first came up, um, which was that uh, he's kind of like, um, Chauncey Gardner from Being There. Have you ever seen that movie? I don't know. I haven't. I, um, it's kind of he's the guy. It's kind of like about an idiot savant. Um, now Peterson isn't an idiot. Like he's no, really intelligent. No. But um, what happens is um, Chauncey is actually this guy na- whose name is Chance, and he is a gardener, and he gets mistaken for this. Upper, it's, it's played by oh, what is his name? Um, the guy who was in. Uh, I'm blanking, but um, he is mistaken for like a genius, and he says he's very gnomic, kind of simple-minded things. But people are like, "Oh, this is so this is so wise," and he becomes like a national national guru um, just by uttering these like banalities. Yeah. <laughs> There's some strong <laughs> some strong okay, parallels to Jordan Peterson. Yes. Like he's saying, "Clean up your room," and all these young men are like, "I have to clean up my room." That makes so much sense. It's like I your wish mom. That I felt so moved by that. I wish that this. Like I could stand to clean my apartment, but it just—I don't find this very like meaningful. Like moms have been yeah. telling sons to clean their room yeah. s- since there were mom sons yeah. in rooms. Right. And suddenly, this like fifty-five-year-old University of <laughs> Toronto professor says to twenty-three-year-old men, "Clean your room," and they're like, they can't believe the the wisdom of it. So, the, the, some of it is yeah. just this like weird, just these weird banalities. Um, yeah. the, the Patreon stuff is very concerning. Why does a university professor need $80,000 a month in extra money, uh, funded by mostly young men across the world? Uh, that doesn't make a ton of sense to me unless he's some kind of grifter. Um, which does seem possible. It certainly does. Um, I mean, I think it's partly that he's kind of, he's claiming victimhood status and benefiting from it. And it doesn't mean that there aren't people who hate him. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who misrepresent his views somewhere or whatever. I think it's clearly he knows what is profitable. And I think that's got to be driving um, certainly some of the decisions he's making, some of the topics he's choosing to emphasize in interviews and so forth. Um, Yeah, I just wonder, I just wonder where he's going with it. But um, 
I don't know. I don't know. I guess maybe there's, I, I mean, I think part of like, I think he does have a more specific angle, let's say, rather than gimmick, a more specific angle, which is the opposite of what everybody else is saying. So everybody else is saying there are structural forces that oppress people for this reason or that reason. He's trying to, while he's doing some of that, like he's sort of touching on that with like the, you know, masculinity is being oppressed or whatever. It's like, no, like your bootstraps, you know, um, whatever thinking, sorry, it's very hot in here. Um, something like with the, like that you should be self-reliant that you should. Oh, you can't, you can't like change, you can't fix the world before you fix yourself. That kind of thing. Right. All of this, which is very different from the, like sort of be calling your, well, obviously calling, you're not calling your Senator in Canada, but, um, you know what I mean? It's different from the sort of politically engaged slash, the world is structurally organized to hurt you type message that I think people are like younger people are getting otherwise. So maybe that's it. But I think it's a mistake to kind of conflate him with Trump because I think there's a lot of overlap, but I don't think it's necessarily the same thing. I'm not convinced that it's as much about whiteness or race in general. It might be, but I just, from what I've read, it doesn't necessarily seem to be. It seems to be much more about gender. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just unclear where it's going. But um, I, I guess what, what strikes me, though, is that it always seems like it's on the cusp of being over. And then there's another one of these long articles, often brilliantly done, like the New York Times one, which really was. Um, and then it's like back, you know, and it seems like it could just kind of be like that was the big book of the season. And then it's gone. And then he's back into obscurity and except for whichever fans. But I feel like it gets driven by the sort of he gets taken very seriously, you know, and each time that happens, there's another wave of it. So I don't know what, if I feel like people who genuinely think he's a huge danger should be like not writing slash clicking on the profiles. I'm not convinced he's any, I think he might just be a fad and, um, but who knows, who knows? Yeah. I, I would say more, seems more like a fad, I don't know, like, you know, the secret or something like that, then some kind of lasting thing here. Um, so, I mean, something else that he he's put out there that annoys me, and I, I'm guessing that in his work is actually more complicated than this, but in the version that's filtered out into, like, the places where people post online, he has these like, this dichotomy between male and female order and chaos. Yes, I, I don't follow. I and that men represent yeah. order and... and Right. The female represents chaos. Now I'm guessing right. there's, and like the, it seems from my limited understanding and the Jungian archetypes, like there's male and female within all of us and order and chaos within all of us. But the way it seems to be filtering out is like men are order, women are chaos, which is insane. That's the and craziest how the fucking thing I've ever heard so in my messy. life. No, but seriously, like where does the mess in the men's rooms, because they're young, single men, where does it come from? It makes no, it makes no sense. Their the, mothers the, come in and mess up the room. <laughs> Every agent of chaos in world history has been a man. It's just a totally absurd. It makes well, no sense his, at all. His insistence on sort of gender essentialism, I guess, is meant to be like, well, it's very, I mean, it just puts him right smack in the middle of the culture wars, right? Because it's like this sort of notion on the right that the left is obsessed with saying that gender is obsolete and all of that, which is like this there's like three people on Tumblr who think this and it's not, you know, um, 
Yeah, I think it fits with that, like that he's going to defend that like men are men and women are women, which I mean, obviously, so the way he got fame initially was with this, where he insisted that he would not call his students by their chosen pronouns. I don't know how much this, well, it had to do with some Canadian law about this. I have to say, I've been teaching for a while in Canada now, and this has absolutely never come up and it's even in grammar classes where in theory it could. Um, so I don't know how much of this was just an issue he invented. Um, I don't know whether, whether he meant that he wouldn't use they or whether he meant that he wouldn't use like individually and like created pro pronouns or what. But the point is that I think regardless of what the actual issue was, it's certainly to make that your thing comes across as insensitive and as that you're trying to kind of make your, you know, you're trying to make some kind of point about gender um, and nostalgia. So I yeah, think that's and, how he kind of built his brand on this. And I don't know, you know, I don't, yeah. I mean, you know, in any discussion or debate that involves gender identity for a straight white man to, claim that he's the real victim here because he might have to say they or something and no one's arresting anyone for, for not saying well, so, they, okay. this so will never happen in world history. So there are, there are differences. So, okay, here's where I can bring in the Canadian angle. There are differences. There isn't the first amendment here. And there is some law that I guess you could be fined as I understand it from a recent Toronto star thing about this and to do with Peterson um, by a professor who used to be friends with him and now had a falling out with him. It's a very long, I don't know if I, well, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of interesting in some respects, but basically, yeah, you could be fined for using the wrong pronoun. Um, and more to the point, there was just in the fall or summer, there was some controversy where a TA um, at a different university um, in Ontario recorded being right. berated by, you know, and then I guess they had said to her, one of the people, you know, one of her supervisors had said to this TA that she could be arrested or something if she showed a clip of Jordan Peterson talking or something. So I guess there's the perception. I mean, I think the speech issues aren't entirely like a figment of his imagination, but I think at the same time, if it's a question of he, she, or they, and you're refusing to use one of those, because, you know, and you're only going to use he or she, I think that's just rude and it's transphobic also, but it's also just as a teacher, like how, why, why do that except to make, I guess, because you earn more on Patreon than, than from the <laughs> university. I don't know. Or you're, you know, either it's mean spirited or it's, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, the the speech issue is it's there, but it's not what he's claiming it to be, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, that, that's a good clarification. Um, the, I guess the last thing was this joke that I put on Twitter, um, which was that Jordan Peterson is just uh, Marie Kondo for men. Um, Marie Kondo, for those not in the know, uh, wrote this book called uh, "The Life Changing Magic of Tidying Up" or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and she has a method about cleaning your house and cleaning your closet and your drawers. Um, 
uh, my wife and I did it one time and we got rid of some stuff. Seemed pretty good. Oh, uh, did it stay, did your place stay neat? No. Um, but uh, we, we did not adhere to her, uh, strict guidelines and so forth, but it was, it was a good way of cleaning out your closet and getting rid of clothes you don't wear anymore. Well, yeah, it is. I went for it. Um, first of all, yes, he is definitely the Marie Kondo. That's, it's all about cleaning room. And I read that book, sort of tried to do my socks the way she recommended. I don't, <laughs> I guess it's useful for, I mean, I've moved a lot. Like my husband and I move around a lot um, for various academic related reasons. And um, I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff in the move. So I haven't had to con Marie. That's what it's called. If the method is mm-hmm. con Marie. Yeah. I mean, I think it's similar. It's just, they're like, why, why the political, I mean, Con Marie got a little criticism too of the like, um, why shouldn't you love your books? Especially where she says to get rid of all your books that you mm-hmm. haven't, that don't spark joy. It's like, no, it's like your books. But, um, yeah, the, the room thing is weird. I, maybe there's more context to it. You know, I, this is where I have to say I have not read this book. Maybe, maybe it has something that, even Marie Kondo doesn't and you read it and you're like, that's it. Like this, what you cannot see of my apartment mess would just totally be solved. So maybe, maybe he is a really good um, cleaning inspirational writer and I've been selling him short. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to read the book anytime soon. Um, but um, people in the comments, I'm sure you think we were wrong about, uh, what we said about Jordan Peterson. So let us know. Uh, <laughs> and please, please remind us that we have not read the books because we are having, we live in cold climates, but we're having heat induced hallucinations and we don't know what we've read. <laughs> um, or should I just, my apartment does not currently have air conditioning or a fan. So who knows? Um, oh, man. It's dealt with. There's an air conditioner not set up yet. So we're, yeah, but um yeah. So let us know in the comments um, about what we hallucinated. Um, <laughs> lobsters, I think, also lobsters. Yeah, let's not, get into, let's not get into the lobster bit. Um, okay, well, <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, Phoebe, thanks for braving the heat and, uh, and coming on and uh, talking about um, Philip Roth, a great American writer, Jordan Peterson, a noteworthy Canadian individual. Um, oh. <laughs> with me and uh, where can people find more of your work if they're interested um, so most of the freelancing I've done um, has been for the New Republic so most of my articles are there um, but please read um, all, my Roth piece in the Jewish Review of Books and most of all my book itself um, The Perils of Privilege yeah yeah, and we did a Blogging Heads conversation about that book, which you can find in the uh, Blogging Heads archives. Um, and check out my piece in the Weekly Standard um, about Roth called We Are Here to Be Insulted. Um, subscribe to the show on iTunes, if you wish, or subscribe to Blogging Heads on YouTube. And we'll see you again next time. Great. Before you go, a quick message from the suits of Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. 
The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.